0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, head of thought leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on August 17th, 2023. Now, this is our 40th episode, which we're very proud of, so I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you are hearing, please rate and review us. And if you have any questions for any of our podcast guests, please send them to the following email address, macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com, and we will do our best to answer them on a future episode or offline. So we're going to be talking about real estate today on Macro Markets. For some situational context, last week was relatively light in terms of data and fundamental developments. In the U.S., we got CPI prints for July, which came in about as expected, with headline CPI ticking slightly higher and core CPI coming in slightly lower. The Guggenheim Investments Macroeconomic Research Group expects to see continued disinflation in the months ahead and the Fed to hike one more time. But there's another CPI print and plenty of other data between now and the next FOMC meeting in September. Now, the most obvious outgrowth of the Fed's ongoing inflation fight has been the jump in borrowing costs over the past 18 months. Corporate borrowers are certainly feeling it, and homeowners are feeling it too, with the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage clocking in at 7.16% for the week ending August 11th, which is the highest it's been since 2001. Commercial real estate, one of the most essential asset classes in our economy, is not immune to these headwinds, nor is it immune from the market impact of other social and economic developments. So here to provide some background and an update on the commercial real estate market is Jenny Marler, a Senior Managing Director and Head of Guggenheim Real Estate. Welcome back, Jenny, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today.
1: It's Great to be back with you, Jay,
0: thanks a lot. So Jenny, let's start with a short primer, if you will, on the real estate market. How big is it? Give us some details on what it looks like.
1: So Jay, commercial real estate is about a $21 trillion market. So real estate is a material part of the economy. Uh, In 2021, the Commercial Real Estate Development Association estimated that real estate's contribution to GDP in the United States is about 5% of total GDP. So it's not insignificant. The key sectors in real estate are really multifamily being apartments, Retail, office, industrial, and hospitality, along with kind of an ever-growing, you know, list of alternative sectors. But those are really the key. You know, in the space, the largest investors in real estate tend to be a wide range of institutional investors and also some high net worth individuals. Uh, the largest debt lenders in the real estate sector tend to be commercial banks, life insurance companies, CMBS issues, and the securitization markets government agencies, and also an ever-growing list of private debt funds. Here at the Guggenheim real estate team, we invest across all levels of the capital stack for our clients. So our commercial mortgages comprise about 70% of our managed portfolio, and the remaining 30% includes equity investments through primarily private joint venture investments, but it's a material portion of the business here at Guggenheim. Now, why
0: should the average investor who's not an institution care about the commercial real estate market?
1: So first of all, the way I like to answer that question, Jay, is it's it's hard to avoid real estate. Everyone lives somewhere. You buy your groceries somewhere. You go to work somewhere. More recently, the last couple of years, sometimes where you choose to live and where you work has been the same. Uh, So the choices that all of us as individuals make about where we want to be, how we want to live and work has ripple effects throughout the entire economy. And, you know, real estate also affects the performance of companies throughout the economy. And I wanted to give you just a few examples in kind of how we see impacts there. So commercial banks, for example, hold a lot of debt on real estate. So in times of heightened default risk, those losses can impact the balance sheet of commercial banks. Your retailers own and lease a lot of real estate, as they say, retail's about location, location, location. So those location costs are a material cost input into their financial performance. And we're going to talk, I think, a fair amount about office today It's going to be my guess. So if workers aren't returning to the office, that not only impacts the office market, but it means that those workers aren't going out to lunch or shopping or dropping by the pharmacy or booking hotel rooms near the office. So the performance of real estate is really very intertwined with the broader economy.
0: It, it almost sounds as if it's systemically important as an asset class.
1: Absolutely certainly affects everything within our own sector, but has ripple effects really through lots of other parts of the economy.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing in the market itself. Can you give us a quick rundown on how the different real estate segments have been performing of late?
1: I'm gonna start with the industrial, meaning really logistics warehouse market, because that really has seen the most systematic change over the last few years, driven primarily by the pandemic. So the explosion really of e-commerce during the pandemic and all the related supply chain stresses that we dealt with throughout 2020 and 21 created significant demand for new warehouse and logistics properties. So even with the rising debt costs, the industrial sector has performed very well. Uh, National vacancy rates for the industrial properties right now are right at about 4%. That's the lowest it's ever been. And average rents in the space are expected to climb over $10 a square foot for the first time in history. And that's really just been driven they not, they, we'll call it the Amazon effect, because Amazon has been a significant developer and tenant at a number of these properties. But, you know, really everyone throughout the supply chain has been trying to figure out the question of how do I move goods? How do I store them along the way? And how do I get them to where they need to be as quickly as I can? So that's been a space we have invested very heavily in and that really throughout the economy has fared quite well, despite the headwinds. You know, retail has been interesting because... You know, when the entire economy shut down in 2020, everybody envisioned just really a doomsday scenario for the retail sector. And by retail, I'm, I'm excluding malls. We don't really invest in malls, Guggenheim real estate. But the sector has really been performing quite well. Vacancy rates are as low as they have ever been in the retail sector since the global financial crisis. You know, there's really there's not been a lot of speculative new construction in retail. Uh, it had been somewhat overbuilt, really headed into the GFC, and so supply has really not kept up with demand since the GFC. Interestingly, the bankruptcy of Bed Bath & Beyond is proving to be a real positive for retail investors. That company had a lot of leases at very prime locations. So as those leases are being terminated in strong locations, owners are able to really achieve higher rents and you really better profit margins as they go look to at those stores. So really, what we all may have envisioned was going to happen when the economy shut down in 2020, despite somewhat of a blip when everyone was at home, has really come back quite well. I'm going to pause for a minute on multifamily. The apartment sector has continued to perform very well. So that that's the headline. Uh, but we have started to see vacancy rates tick up just a little bit in the past, you know, call it 12 months. You know, in terms of red flags and why we think that's happened is... There's been a lot of new supply coming online in some markets, uh, particularly the Sunbelt. You know, as everybody was moving to get second homes where it was warm, where they could work from home during COVID, you know, a lot of new apartment starts and so there's been a lot of new deliveries into those markets. So we think that's gonna put some downward pressure on rents, you know, the the sort of saving grace on the other side of that is, you know, with, with the introduction you gave at the beginning of this, Jay, that mortgage rates really have continued to be quite sticky and high, you know, the affordability of homes for some people is just still not achievable so there's still continued demand for those apartment rentals the one again red flag being just to kind of watch some of those markets that have gotten a little bit oversupplied so in terms of the hotel sector everything's rebounded really quite nicely since the pandemic performance in most markets is back in line with pre-pandemic levels and you know in line with some of the broader inflation you know the industry's actually seen higher levels of average daily room rates and revenue per available room than they were even seeing in 2019. And finally, just this year into 2023, really starting last year, the hotel sector is finally benefiting from a more sustained return of business travel and group events. So even if we start to see some slowdown in leisure travel, which is with the broader market headwinds, we do expect that you know pickup in business travel to help offset some of those slowdowns. So now we get to kind of the, head, the the big headline, the elephant in the room, and that's the office sector. The office sector, Jay, really is very challenged right now, given the stickiness of hybrid work arrangements, vacancy rates are approaching 20% on average nationally. Some markets that, you know, say San Francisco or New York, where, you know, people, fewer people are coming back to the office and when they do, they have the challenge of public transportation, you know, getting on a train to get there have been the slowest to come back. But it is definitely the sector that is the most challenged right now, and we think that's going to continue for the near term.
0: Let's focus on office, which sounds like it, it's definitely the most problematic segment of the real estate market. Can you briefly summarize a little bit more detail what is going on there?
1: Sure. So I think it's really getting a double whammy from both sides of the ledger. You know, it's it's we're seeing stress both on income, as you know, fewer leases are renewing, and then also on expenses. So despite the fact that, you know, there's more and more desire to return to the office and more companies are publishing their mandated return to the office, the office sector is still not back to where it was the beginning of COVID in terms of occupancy and actual, you know, people swiping cards coming into buildings. So now that companies understand people can work remotely, at least part of the time, a lot of company leadership is rethinking their office footprints. And then on the flip side, on the expense side, you know, with the increased cost mortgage debt, you know, the increased coupons that people are paying on their mortgage loans. Importantly, the increase in the insurance costs that we're seeing throughout the United States with all the natural disasters the insurers have had the last couple of years. And then the inflation and the, the building and materials costs, you know, that expense side of the ledger is also increasing. So you add that together, and at the end of the day, when your income is challenged and your expenses are increasing, you're eroding equity. Then you add to all of those just basic property-specific stresses, the fact that, you know, very few lenders are willing to loan against office properties right now. So it's challenging to find an office loan and also very challenging for those that are on the books of all those commercial banks right now, very challenging to refinance. You know, the conventional wisdom in the real estate industry is that office properties have probably lost at least 40% of their value. Uh, Some industry experts predict that the total value destruction, to use the term that nobody likes to say out loud right now, could be as much as 70%. So what does that mean as a practical matter? That means a lot of owners are simply going to hand the keys back to their lenders because there's no equity remaining in the asset. There's one large owner of office assets that has a large portfolio in New York that recently completed what he described as the Kodak project. If you had your Kodak camera back in the day, Jay, where he went to identify all of the office properties in their portfolio that he considered functionally obsolete and simply not worth continuing to carry the expenses. And I guarantee you he is not the only investor in office properties throughout the country thinking through that equation.
0: Well, do you think that the back to office push will help or is this remote slash hybrid work scenario a secular trend that is gonna have to be contented with going forward?
1: You know, the return to office mandates have helped a bit. Um, there is a, a service called Castle Data that tracks, you know, key card swipes in major buildings and major markets. And most markets are starting to see that occupancy return uh, to, say, 60 percent, but it's kind of flatlined there. Um, and, and that's also not necessarily tracking days swiped. So, you know, if you're in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, relatively busy days when things sort of look, air quotes, back to normal, Mondays, Fridays, you know, are a different story. So even the return to office mandate still doesn't have people back every day. Um, I do think if we start to head into a recessionary period and job market leverage really continues to shift a bit more back to the employers, so they may have more leverage to make the demand for people to be in, we'll start to see a little bit more improvement. But I think we've all figured out it's still possible to work remotely. So some level of hybrid work is simply here to stay.
0: So you mentioned that some owners are just going to turn the keys back in, but not everyone will do that. So how are office owners and developers adapting to this changing circumstance?
1: It's a great question. And, you know, having been in the real estate estate industry for a long time, you know, there are a lot of very creative people um, who are always looking for solutions when they encounter a roadblock. You know, there's a big push right now in the industry to consider and explore adaptive reuse strategies. So converting office building potentially into apartments. Yeah, you know, every city struggles with the need for more housing and in particular, a need for more affordable housing. So there's a big push right now in the industry uh, to seek support from cities uh, to help offset some of that cost by offering yeah, tax credits, other subsidies, um, faster entitlements, yeah, a little bit more leniency around zoning entitlements to help support those conversions. And really, the industry spending a lot of time talking about this, but the success of the strategy is really going to vary a lot building to building. Yeah, not every building has the bone structure to support the conversion. You know, it really depends on where do the windows sit? Do the windows open? Where's the plumbing? Can you basically reconfigure the bones and the skeleton of that building to make it work for a different purpose? So really the financial analysis is fairly simple. It's, you know, if I do this, are the rents that I'm gonna be able to charge going to be enough to offset the cost to convert? So I don't really see it as something that will end up being a widespread strategy Um, if it becomes, you know, something that's more than just kind of a theoretical discussion. It's simply going to have to involve some level of subsidy and development incentives, really to get the developers to invest that cost and take that risk to achieve the conversion.
0: Is the office situation the same around the country? Is it the same for all office types? And how do you determine if there is any recovery brewing? What do you look at?
1: So I would say at the end of the day, in part because of What's happened to the debt markets and, you know, how scarce capital has become for, for lending against office buildings. All offices really are challenged to some level. You know, the, the magnitude of the impact does vary market by market. I mean, certainly cities like San Francisco where workers have simply not returned and law and orders not being enforced, so people don't feel safe, you know, getting onto public transportation or, you know, walking to the office have taken the largest hits. We've actually seen office assets just in the past few months trading in San Francisco at up to 80% discounts to their pre-pandemic values. So a very significant loss of value in certain markets. And yet, I, the other thing I would say is that the value destruction has also generally been the worst for older buildings. You know, To the extent that companies are trying to entice their workers to come back to the office, there's a preference for the newest, most amenitized buildings. Everybody wants the fit, even if they don't use it, everyone wants the fitness center and the the social gathering area, and all the things that, you know, don't simply don't exist in some of those old B and C class buildings. And then you add to that, the older buildings are just more expensive to operate. You know, they they don't have the, the operating efficiencies that some of the newer buildings have been able to achieve. So you kind of have it on both sides. You know, you're not getting the rents in some of those properties and they're simply higher to maintain and keep up with. I think you asked the second part of the question is really how how are we kind of looking at? It? I mean, we look at the occupancy numbers, um, but one thing that we've talked a lot about recently in our group, because I think it's still a little bit of a hangover from the pandemic, is we are very careful to distinguish between tenancy and occupancy. Yeah, there's still a lot of leases out there where there's a tenant, um, you know, oftentimes a very financially sound tenant that's still contractually obligated to pay rent, but the space is dark. I actually. Did a site visit on an office property that we had in California a few weeks ago. You know, had looked at the rent roll before I left, and you know, literally, luckily I didn't get arrested. But you know, running around peeking in windows, trying to see what's going on in the spaces. At the end of the day, and you know, there was one particular building that we believed was you know 80% occupied. It was 80% leased, Um, but in looking through some of the some of the windows and seeing what was actually going on, the furniture had been removed, the space was dark, there were no people working. So that's one thing we spend a lot of time looking carefully at is occupancy versus tenancy. And the reality is we're not gonna know the full impact of the value destruction in the office sector until we start to see transactions. You know, this is a market right now where if a borrower does not have to sell or refinance, she's simply not gonna transact. So it's going to take that return of transactions and some period of price discovery. And that's when we'll start to see where the real loss of value has been. And on the flip side, where there could be some buy opportunities.
0: Well, let me ask you a couple more general questions about uh, real estate. Um, Are you seeing uh, the typical volume of refinancings and new transactions right now, or is the interest rate environment really putting a damper on these types of things?
1: The interest rate environment has certainly chilled the level of transactions. Volume is really down this year as much as 60% over last year. And again, I think I said this a minute ago, if you don't have to sell, if you do not have to refinance, you're simply not going to do it right now. It's a combination not just of the higher rates, but there's also fewer lenders out there in the market, so you've got fewer options to go to. You know, in our own portfolio of the loans that we manage, we have a lot of borrowers who have come to us looking really for short-term maturity extensions, and that's really just to to bridge themselves into a better refinance market and, you know, we see opportunities in those situations to help our clients shore up their positions. And, you know, we are sympathetic to, you know, if, if we were the investor on that side of the fence that it, it is very challenged right now. So really just look for a way to shore up our position and, you know, allow some of our sponsors to have, you know, a little bit of flexibility a little bit more runway to get them into a more favorable refinance climate.
0: Um, this might be a, an unfair characterization based on what you've just said, but, um, do you think it's fair to say that uh, the real estate market is a possible black swan, even if it's one moving in slow motion?
1: You know, it's a question we've talked a lot about and it's certainly a question Anne and I have talked a lot about and I know she's spoken, you know, at length on some of her most recent commentary about commercial real estate and her views.
0: That's Ann Walsh, our, the chief investment officer of Guggenheim Partners Investment Management.
1: So I think if you're talking about office properties, that's a fair characterization. You know, with all the advances in technology that I've seen in my own career, I don't think it's completely a surprise that we're starting to see less demand for physical office properties. But the potential for a doom loop in the office sector could well have material consequences on the broader economy. And if you believe industry predictions that as much as 20% of available office space in the United States is obsolete, has no value there simply will be losses. But as to the rest of the real estate market, I don't think it's a fair question. I mean, fundamentals are really pretty strong, much stronger certainly than we saw in the global financial crisis. And really the most critical issues right now facing the broader industry are the availability and the cost of debt. So until interest rates begin to moderate and there's more liquidity in the market, we're simply not gonna see transaction volume improve materially. The office sector is one of the most robust sectors in commercial real estate, in particular for like the non-agency lenders. So commercial banks, for example, um, don't compete well against the government agencies to finance apartments. So, you know, office would be a disproportionate portion of their books versus say, you know, their apartment loans. So in the lending space, office has always been a bit of a darling. It was always considered one of the most secure investments you could make because you had the benefit of long-term leases. So you could underwrite to certainty of cash flow. Um, So the office sector has always been a very material portion of the debt portfolios of all the major lenders. So even though it's only a portion of the market that may really have this ripple effect, it's a material enough portion that it will be felt.
0: Jenny, one investor's uh, distress is another investor's opportunity. So what is your group doing right now to actively manage the risk in your portfolio and where are you finding value?
1: So we are doing a lot of blocking and tackling right now. Um, That's kind of the name of the game when things start to go into distress. So we're putting a lot of boots on the ground. You know, We're out doing site visits to make sure we have a clear understanding of what's going on, what's our assets. We're keeping a high level of communication with our sponsors. I mean, sponsorship behind these investments is really important. You know, so just because there's general distress in the market, if you have a strong sponsor with the patience and the wherewithal to kind of wade through that distress and ride it out, um, that gives us a lot of comfort. And then we're doing, on behalf of both our debt and equity investors, a lot of creative structuring to improve our client's position. So while we may be giving some borrowers more runway to maturity, uh, we're doing that in exchange for better credit enhancement. So the blocking and tackling is really a strategy to shore up our position as best we can in this climate. Um we do see value right now in debt. I mean, it's been a very long climate for mortgage lenders of, you know, interest rate handles in the threes or even, you know, as we were kind of coming to the end of that run, a little bit sub-three. Uh, but you know, given the trajectory of interest rates, you know, mortgages are much more attractive investments than they were for us a couple of years ago. And, you know, even though values are under pressure, for us, it's really all about fundamentals and understanding what are the demand drivers we think are gonna support the value with that specific asset in this market. And, you know, we, we're continuing to lend on all asset classes. Uh, we have to pay a lot of attention to the idiosyncratic risks and really understand on a property by property level, you know, what, how that asset's positioned in the market. I think you will start to see buy opportunities. You know, that's that's the way the cycle rolls. You know, there are a lot of people in the real estate market right now lining up capital to take advantage of those opportunistic investments. Yeah, I did see a note, um, I think within the last two weeks, the number one use, new funds that are being raised right now, they're all being raised for opportunistic fund investments. So there are a lot of people sitting on the sidelines anxious to see the transaction activity start to pick up. So, Jenny,
0: what are the main takeaways that you have today for our listeners?
1: I think if I had to give you one thing, Jay, it would really be that, you know, in the private commercial real estate space, nuance matters a lot. And, you know, be wary of headline panic. You know, we we talk a lot in our group about idiosyncratic risk. You know, we we can assume at this point in the in the market that all commercial properties have some implied loss of value at this very specific snapshot in time. And some, you know, particularly offices, probably more severe than others. But in the private real estate market, just because the sector is under pressure, doesn't necessarily imply that all investments are going to suffer losses. You know, owners who don't have to transact simply won't, and they'll choose to ride this out. Um, So it really, it's a block and tackle. It's a property by property analysis. And, you know, for those sponsors with the wherewithal to kind of weather through what we're dealing right now. You know, we don't expect there to be widespread losses in the industry, even even though that's facing some pressure right now. Is there anything else that you would
0: like to share with our listeners before we let you go?
1: Well, I'll say one thing, Jay, and it's more in the nature of a request given everything we've talked about. Get your teams back to the office. <laughs> All real estate <laughs> investors will be very grateful, as will the folks down the street that yeah, you know, that that are relying on that lunch traffic and happy hour traffic and the pharmacy that relies on people that to- pop in and pick up things in the middle of the day. So, you know, certainly get the traffic back. You know, that's the number one cure to this to this situation is is a, get the demand drivers back.
0: Well, Macro Marcus will try and help get that word out.
1: Terrific. Thank you, Jay.
0: Well, thanks again for your time, Jenny. Uh, please come again and visit with us soon. It's a very important topic and you obviously know a ton about it. Be happy to. All right. Well, my thanks once again to Jenny Marler for joining us today. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please rate and review us. And if you have any questions for Jenny or any of our podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com and we'll answer them for you. Again, happy 40th episode to all of our listeners. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, uh, like Ann Walsh's new commentary, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com slash perspectives. So long.
2: Important Notices and Disclosures. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds, and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. Investments in securities of real estate companies and companies related to the real estate industry are subject to the same risks as direct investments in real estate. These risks include, among others, changes in national, state or local real estate conditions, obsolescence of properties, changes in the availability, cost and terms of mortgage funds, changes in the real estate values and interest rates, and the generation of sufficient income. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. This podcast contains opinions of the author or speaker, but not necessarily those of Guggenheim Partners or its subsidiaries. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of, nor liability for, decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors, LLC.